Oh, and it's also the summer solstice today. What a great way to bring in the summer summer. solstice. Oh, we should have started about that. Uh, Maybe I'll just cut this out and put it at the beginning and say, oh, Oh, it's the summer solstice. Happy summer solstice. Okay, wait, let me put this on here. Um, Happy blessings of summer solstice and the planets becoming equally balanced. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. No, happy solstice to you. Oh, that was good. Yeah, I'm going to cut that out, but I'll put that at the beginning. (laughs) Thanks. Well, so let's let's uh, start the the podcast uh, proper. Which me saying proper is a complete lie because this is the summer sessions of the podcast, which are very more like looser, looser in form. Um, so this is Briscoe and Fireside summer sessions, which is like just like imagine you know we're in the backyard eating Otter Pops and like have doing summertime things, right? And so my first question for you is, uh, well, actually, before I ask that, I need to again. Um, uh, my co-host Abby, who typically runs the podcast with me, she's been busy getting married and doing a honeymoon and also finishing up her grad program at BYU. So she is really busy. And so it'll just be me until we have, uh, until Abby's life kind of settles down a little bit. Um, and so, uh, my first question, Anna would be, what, uh, have you been doing to bring in the summertime? That's a great question. Um, so each summer, I feel like I do something different, something I've been doing, um, I hate the word intentional, but <laughs> something I've been trying to do purposefully Yeah, purpose. is, uh, oh, wow, this is a terrible way to start off, but uh, I, I mean, but I don't want to hate on words, but mm-hmm. I really have been trying to be purposeful about getting outdoors, um, restoring my relationship to uh, being in the forest and out in the woods. Um, I think... For me professionally, I having studied forestry and environmental science, um, you know, studying academic work so deeply is so wonderful and promising in ways, but it can be problematic too in that it takes you out of, it's kind of sometimes can become a disembodied knowledge and takes you out of it. So I'm trying to re-embody my experience of outdoors by just being there and not trying to have any filters. So that's something I'm doing. That's um, a that's a really good answer. Yeah. I'm better- just trying to wander. Wandering? Sorry. No, wandering's wandering's good. I uh, I just moved to a new part of the like uh, Salt Lake. I'm back. I moved from one part of Utah or Salt Lake County to another part in Salt Lake County, and so I uh, walk. There's a, a cemetery in my backyard, and so I go on walks. And so my wandering is through a graveyard. <laughs> right now. Oh my gosh, I love cemeteries. Like <laughs> any country I go to, I try to visit a cemetery. I think they are just universally special. Yeah. Places. Well, and I mean, this is a complete tangent, but just how each country or each nationality like approaches burial work is very different and how like America does it versus like, I remember a cemetery in Germany that I thought was really cool versus cemeteries in Africa. Like I just, our approach to death is (laughs) what a great morbid way to begin our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This is perfect. No, I think this is a great way to start. I mean, you can't talk about life without talking about dying. No. So I think a lot of us globally, we're, we're still in the midst of uh, deep, deep loss from this global pandemic, right? Yeah. Like the loss of life and systems and structures. But with this disruption, there are ways to come in and be better. You know, and, and in addition to the pandemic-induced loss, there's also just regular loss that's going on all the time. And at the end of last year, beginning of this year, I had some deaths in the family. 
and I was sitting at a funeral. I had flown back from Connecticut and it was fall time in Connecticut and then in New England, East coast of the U S fall autumn is just a brilliant lush time, right? You do not want to be anywhere else in the world because it's yeah. so beautiful, but I was having to fly out repeatedly to, you know, hospice visits, funerals. And I was flying into Utah, you know, autumn had already finished and it looked just so dead, <laughs> you know? And I was like, this mm-hmm. is symbolic. But I was sitting <laughs> in a chapel. We were at one of the funerals and they started singing the song, how great thou art. Right. Which is a song, you know, known throughout yeah. all of Christian Christianity a lot, especially English speaking. And it was very interesting because I was going through all the verses and I had not engaged this song for years, for whatever reason, the congregations I had been in all throughout graduate school, hadn't really sung this song. There's so many hymns to pick from, but it was really interesting because the first verse was very cosmological, you know, the stars and the wonderful wonders of the universe. Mm-hmm. And the second one is very ecological talks about and when through the woods and forest glades, I wander Ooh. and you're hearing the birds you know, you're seeing the brook, you're feeling the breeze. And I was like, what? Wow, I need to go back. <laughs> it was and- this very embodied, right? So it goes like cosmological to ecological. And I'm just on a, t- I'm going to go through the whole song no, just no, really quick. Yeah. Um, then the third one is very Christological. It goes to, and when I think that God is son not sparing, right? It's very Jesus focused, atonement focused. Mm-hmm. And the fourth and final one is, um, there's so many ways to describe this. I would say maybe S eschatology eschatological right end of times yeah Yeah. i mean just end of story thing i I hate saying end of the world stuff end of story Um, stuff that's good yeah and end of the season yeah um i just thought it was a really beautiful kind of encapsulation of this and right in the middle of the song there's this very embodied ecological engagement right with with experiencing god and so when i we were reading and singing that line about the forest glades and wandering in them i was like I need to re-embody my work with forestry. I need to, Yeah. I just need to go wander. I, I don't need to be hiking through to a destination. I don't need to be IDing all the trees. Yeah. I just need to wander and absorb. And so that's what I've been there. doing yeah. once a week. No, that's very interesting. Um, that's really, uh, I think that that dovetails really nicely into the conversation that I want to have today because I feel like, I feel like, um, you know, like you said, academia can be very disembodied, right? It can live so much mm-hmm. in our head that we forget to bring in the body. And I think that, um, you know, spiritual work can be so quote spiritual that it also disembodies itself from reality or disembodies mm-hmm. itself from, you know, our, ourselves or even, even the brain. Uh, and so I know that you were a gr- uh, exactly who I wanted to have this conversation with. And before we jump into the conversation or topic itself, can you give us a little background into who you are? I know you've kind of already referenced that you're out of Yale and that you have kind of a dual degree, but can you give us just a little bit of background? Yeah. So who am I? Uh, I'm a former art historian, museum educator. I worked in modern and contemporary art museums in Washington, DC, Utah for a little bit and in Venice, Italy. (laughs) I also ended up at a science museum in Boston, like the natural history museum at Harvard. It was so fun. It was so fun anyway. Um, but I was, I'm very interested in the public type of conversations. Mm -hmm. Uh, currently I did a pivot a number of years ago and I'm currently an academic researcher and how I ended up at this spot was I went back to school and I did graduate work at Yale university and I picked Yale because it was the only program of its kind in the nation. And I think globally that had, you know, these programs that were synergistic and could work with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and one was at a school of forestry and environmental studies. It is now called Yale School of Environment. 
and the other was at Yale School of Divinity. And so I applied to both and I got into both. You had to do it separate. Really? I didn't um, know that. I thought, mm, yeah, cool. You have to, you have to apply to both and they don't talk to each other. Ooh, so prestigious. it's a really weird program. Huh. And, um, yeah, so that, that's what I did. I, I had those education tools in my belt. So currently I'm a researcher with yeah. Yale university, the Yale forum on religion and ecology mm-hmm. and what the work of our team does. We're led under two wonderful, wonderful professors who are just, juggernauts in the field and we do a number of research projects education public outreach but all within the field of convening and curating and encouraging religious dialogue on the environment and whether that is strengthening buddhist dialogue in the environment or encouraging interreligious dialogue or just anything um, we it's kind of the one-stop shop so the, the way that i go about this i have the education tools in my belt um, training in world religions, the other in environmental science, also visual arts. I was always kept my foot in the art art history world. Every semester I was down at the School of Art at Yale and took a number of fun classes. But professionally, I have uh, experience in interreligious diplomacy globally, working with Parliament of the World Religions, United Religions Initiative, uh, the Faith for Earth Initiative at United Nations Environment Program and designing some online courses, which we just launched earlier this year. So cool. a lot of work. Then I also happen to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. So or long. Mormons, if you're nasty. <laughs> I know. Or if you're, uh, what's yeah. uh, if you're heretical at this point, uh, whatever. Um, oh, I mean, I love synonyms, so I yeah. mean, I'm all good. No, that's all good. Um, so that's a pretty robust background. And so you and I both, you know, George Handley, George Handley has been on the podcast. He was one of my mentor professors before. And so I feel like you and I are, uh, I, we've had some conversations over the last few years, um, just with my work at SUA. I know you've participated on a couple of webinars, um, and you've even come to the Mormon history association panel that I threw together a couple of years ago. Um, and so, fantastic job. Oh, thank so I, knows. except for I showed up in jean cutoffs and <laughs> everyone else was dressed really professionally and I just did not understand. It was awesome. Everyone probably thought you were an investigator. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm very casual. A cas- yeah. That's my, my, my strength, my weakness is that I'm very casual. Um, and so I, I wanted the conversation that I want to have today is basically about the spiritual value of landscape of the earth, of environmental work of nature, of the wild. Um, I've been, so I kind of want to have a pretty candid, almost vulnerable conversation about this, right? I've been working in the field of faith slash earth stewardship for three years now and both professionally. And before that, like, you know, as a hobby, as a student, and honestly, I've grown almost frustrated, a little bit cynical, a little bit, uh, down about kind of the state of, of everything. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about, um, the distance between what a thing can be and what a thing is. Um, and not only the grief involved in that distance, but also the sheer burnout that one can experience trying to close that distance. Um, and so I guess, uh, you know, all of this is to say that like trying to work uh, faith communities into being more earth centered is hard work. (laughs) It feels like very hard work. And, uh, and I have just some observations about kind of the, the state of like LDS faith-based stewardship. And I just thought we could, we could talk through these observations and, and, and maybe, um, kind of 
come up with what the state of, of, uh, of faith-based activism is in Utah and maybe where we can head in the future, if that sounds right. That sounds awesome. I'm Madison. I love knowing that you are my intellectual sibling, having (laughs) also descended from the the, the tutelage of George Handley. Yeah, no, we really are. He's got, we got a lot of like George Handley, like adopted siblings out there. Uh, And they've all, a lot of them have been on this podcast. So this is kind of like a a chance for all of us to get together and talk, which is cool. And I, yeah, no, definitely. I'm happy to, thanks for these ideas with you. I think that the conversations we've had have always been like, parenthetical, right. Or to the side, Mm -hmm. it's never been the focus. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I'm happy, pleased to do this as a entry point for anyone. Yeah. yeah. About these ideas. Well, good. So like I said, I've been doing the, you know, Briscoe Firesides now for two years and I've been working as a faith community organizer with, with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance for three years now. And I've, I've worked on a number of coalitions, with, uh, LDS earth stewardship, the Mormon environmental stewardship Alliance. Um, you know, the citizens climate lobby has kind of an LDS action team and Mormon women for ethical government have. So I've been doing a lot of coalitional work, right? I've been like waging the battle of like disembodied, like interreligious, like global, like international work. And you've been waging the war of like deeply local. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, actually I, I think there's, there's something to, you know, that, I have a little bit of envy for your work because it is so like interdenominational because if I, cause I feel like an interdenominational work or interfaith work, there's just so much engagement and eagerness to meet each other on a local playing field or on an even playing field. Right. But I feel like in kind of more insular local stuff, we can lose sight of the forest. And I think that's part of like what I, you know, so one of my first observations, um, is that I feel like, that, uh, most stewardship earth stewardship work in LDS circles. Um, we have this idea that the work we're doing is going to change people, but I think actually what the work is doing is just justifying people who already care about the earth and doesn't do much to actually change people or win people over to thinking more, you know, earth centered. You think that's an accurate observation? Oh my goodness. That's such a big question. <laughs> yes. Yes. And no, can it okay. be both? Yeah, I know. You know I, I know. I think totally there's some truth both. to this and I didn't, I like the way that you, um, talk about this because I mean, I don't know that there, oh my gosh, how do we even start with this? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I wish I was more articulate about articulate about this, but I think maybe we'll start there. People just aren't sure how to articulate you know, like this, it's a question of articulation and authority and authority. I think some people are unsure of how much they can prescribe what other people of their faith should not of what they should believe in, what they could reasonably be expected to have some affinity to, right. Which in the, in the basis of that is often found through shared scriptural texts, whether that's conference talks or other things too. I just, you can't really blame them. Um, yeah, no, I, it's not necessarily that I'm the, I'm looking to blame as much as I'm trying to understand what it is the work we're actually doing is, right? So kind let's of think the, about some words. Yeah, yeah. Right? Now, so in your question, you asked, let me see if I can look at my notes for this. Um, you asked, you, you said that um, sometimes we feel like it's to justify people who already care about the earth. So let's think about how we define earth. How do you define earth, Madison? In this context, in this context, I Mm -hmm. would define earth as 
uh, you know, either the local landscapes that we're part of or the great ecological web, the, the larger ecological web that includes all earth systems. I know that's, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so everyone has these different definitions and that's why sometimes it feels like we're running in circles. A lot of times when people talk about environment or earth, they're thinking of plants, trees, bushes, dirt. Very often they don't include the animal kingdom. Very often they don't include humans. Very often they don't include geology. So everyone comes at it from this different perspective. And I think that's sometimes where people get stuck because I think historically environmental ecological conversations have historically been co-opted by systems of power and privilege and colonialism. You will not find throughout any time of the world where there has been exploitation or seizure of land without the exploitation and use of people. Yeah. That's just, that's just a reality we need to deal with. But I think that these systems are intertwined and I think the problem comes in, in having that tunnel vision. And I think one thing that helped me was, you know, for a lot of times, for many years, I just thought the earth and caring for the earth was my backyard. It was the trees. It was the soil. It was the nature hikes I went on and for mutual activities. But then as I got older, right, I made the, the trip, the pilgrimage out to the border of the Great Salt Lake and saw the spiral jetty. It's this great earthwork land art. And I was just shocked. It was an iconic artwork that's known globally in art art circles, but yet to local Utahns, many don't know it's there. And you go not only to this lake that no one really goes to, because it's kind of stinky <laughs> and it's kind of salty and the drive there is really bumpy, but it was a very transformative experience. This kind of waste place. Um, and I realized that too was part of the earth I needed to be taken care of. I needed, right. That the earth can be defined in these, these big spaces too. Another one too, and another way that I helped me define how I define earth is, um, you know, as I was closing down my time at BYU as an undergrad, I, I realized that just all the stars were aligning and I extended my graduation date and I decided to take a semester and study in Jerusalem. My final semester, everyone advised me against it. They were like, you have job <laughs> offers. You have job offers in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Are you stupid? So I was like, I don't know, stupid for Jesus. Like, I had no stupid idea what I'm Stupid for Jesus, into, that's a motto. But I was like, I just I just think it's, it sounded, it felt like the right thing to do. And what really surprised me was this was after my visit to this waste place of the borders of the Great Salt Lake. And it was very fascinating because there was a simultaneous religious veneration and contestation over land based on shared religious history and deep spiritual meaning. But yet there was the simultaneous occupation by the Israeli state for the Palestinian people, right? And there was a lecture that one of my Palestinian professors gave about holy land, right? He says, what's important, the people or the land, right? Because for some reason we have this duality that the earth or the land is something that is not us. And he gave this really powerful, powerful lecture just about how, um, not the what, but who. So I think when you talk about caring for the earth, I think sometimes where people can get really stuck is thinking of it as a what or a thing or something that isn't us. But if we think of earth as who, I think that's where there's more traction. Not a collection of objects, but a community of subjects to oh, Thomas, Thomas Perry. Perry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also my intellectual grandfather. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and not to, you know, not that, 
um, doing work to justify people caring about the earth mm-hmm. within a community is like, that's not bad work to be, that's good work to be doing. Right. Like people need to know so that, that they have a foundation to stand on within their own spiritual community to, to work from. Right. Um, and so th- th- I guess my, my observation or my critique is not necessarily to disparage the work that is going on, but is more to try and accurately see what it is the work that we're doing is right. Because I think that, I think that we, we spin our wheels a lot trying to think like, Oh, this is, if we're going to like, this is going to change people. If we can dredge up all this stuff in, in, you know, Mormon text about the earth, this is going to change people. When actually I think what that is doing is it's actually just providing more fuel and more of a foundation for people who already care about this stuff to work from. Yeah, no, this is, this is really fascinating, Madison. I'm glad you brought this up because I think it's one, I think it's to help empower people, right? I think a lot of people who do care about environmental or climate issues sometimes feel like they don't have a space because historically, at least in the United States, which often United States politics informs a lot of the way that the church governs globally. And so, and that's just a reality, but, but I think that there are um, people who, Historically, unfortunately, you know, environmental climate conversation has been aligned with things that people feel very against and they're very uncomfortable talking about. So I think people who do already care about the earth, however you want to frame it, um, they cannot feel very empowered to even reveal that they care. So, so I think it'd be empowering. And I think there is some way that maybe, like you think with good research, you know, whenever there's good research that stands up to peer review and is solid in the, in the process of creating knowledge, there's always the literature review. It's going through everything that's been said or done and putting it together in a story. And I think maybe that's where we might be. We might be getting toward the end of the literature review period of Latter-day Saint environmental huh. momentum. I, I'm not that's, sure. I know I that's a good framing. The work of yeah. Latter-day Saint environmental stewardship, you know, Mesa, yeah. right? Mormon Environmental Stewardship Alliance. Yeah, yeah. There's all this work to catalog, catalog, see it here. Yeah. But then the next step is, so what? Right? Yeah. What's next? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, for you know, those listening at home, uh, I guess Latter-day Saint Earth Stewardship now is they've kind of changed their name. They have a tremendous library. Yeah, they did. They they to yeah, so they just sent out a new newsletter. Anyways, what is but it? Latter-day but- Saint Environmental Stewardship instead oh. of LDS Earth Stewardship. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like some grand cosmic, you know, star kind of change. Getting more kosher. Yeah. Just getting more culturally kosher. Um, but they have a tremendous resource on their, their website where they have cataloged almost every reference to the earth or sustainability or stewardship in our canon. And it is really robust. And so I I like that. I like that framing of like, this is maybe we're, we're ending the, the ending the era of pure or of literature review. Literature review. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what is important. It is necessary, Yeah, yeah, but not sufficient. And if the professors I work with, that's kind of their battle cry, not battle cry, their, the restorative intergenerational collaborative cry, right? Necessary, but not sufficient. And this is necessary good work, but I think you're right that um, and you're talking about changing people or winning people over. I, I don't know if these are meant to be tools of conversion or, or convincing. Maybe, maybe there'd be tools of demonstration, demonstration and just saying this is the state of affairs. And so, yeah, no, I'm glad you asked this question because I haven't thought about it in this way until now.
one of the other uh, observations that I've made about working in these circles is that there seems to be a timidity um, in, you know, and, and a, he- a hesitation to rock the boat um, and like to actually do things beyond the like, let's bring someone in to talk to us or like, yeah. let's, let's like write a, you know, something, a blog post, right? And there doesn't seem to be a, 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 a hunger to do much more than like that. And there seems to be a timidness in, and I don't know if you see that in interfaith. I don't know if that, that's something that's just unique to the kind of the Mormon uh, culture or if no. that's something that exists more broadly, right? That there's a timid, there's a timidity and a hesitation to like rock the boat. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I don't think this is a problem that's unique only to this specific religious tradition. I do think that it's a lot more prevalent in hierarchical type of governance structures where there's a, where there's centralized authority, right? You see this and, um, you know, but we're used as a hierarchical church, stuff can get done fast. There's an assembly line of empowerment that is quite impressive when it's top down. It is very efficient. So again, can you blame them for wanting to bring someone in or saying, let's have this general authority talk about this? Because if there's someone in a position of power higher on the rung and they say something, there's a precedence of that being faster. But talking about the timidity, I think I would want to structure my comments on this based on preferences versus precedence. I think um, a little over a year ago, I was invited to be a guest lecturer at this law school class in Pittsburgh. And the professor was like, you know, it was a virtual, it was a virtual class. They were like, you know what? The students are going to have all their screens off. You're not going to get any questions. It'll be fine. So I give my homework, right? You know, and and I give them all these great, cool homework assignments about, you know, uh, the Islamic Council in Indonesia issuing a religious edict to protect endangered species or environmental justice issues in the Southern United States, or I was giving them some kind of topics to engage with. And I showed up to class and all of them had their cameras on and all of these like little lawyers in, in the making had all these, like, I felt like I was on trial. I was like, whoa, this is my shirt. Right. But what was so interesting is most of their curiosity centered around procedural process. How does something come from religious doctrine, something that is a belief and how does it turn into a belief like religious teaching that is then culturally believed and then going beyond belief and becoming actionable and then we can measure it they were so interested in that whole trajectory of if it's in the religious text how can it go through right or if there's an action how does it then influence the religious kind of understandings um And so I I kind of think that there's this hesitancy, maybe timidity, because there isn't really, I mean, you need to bring an environmental lawyer here. I I don't (laughs) have that language, but there isn't really precedence for a procedure for grassroots work. I think often we don't see examples. We don't see church leadership going head to head with differences of opinion or execution when it comes to famous Broadway plays or TV shows, (laughs) right? But the standard is, you know, put your head down, don't make a fuss, recognize it, don't engage, don't fuel a fire that has one drop of negativity or weakness. And we see this too with the experience of the missionary work program throughout the world, which is quite unique and extraordinary in the way that it differs from other types of missionary efforts and other religions, but, you know, it was very, very clear and explicit written down, you know, you were not there to Bible bash. You were not there to, 
to entertain or explain how other any other religious tradition is wrong. You should never be critiquing or criticizing anything. We were specifically forbidden to talk about any type of politics from any country. And there was this type of divinely encouraged disengagement from these systems of potential conflict that I think, you know, the result is so many members of our church go through this experience, right, of the, this missionary labor, which is quite beautiful in all of its respects. But in this sense, um, there's a type of embedded avoidance of engagement with something that, you know, is lacking or is negative, right? And so the result, I think, is that members, there's more precedence um, to follow the procedure of, okay, focus on the positive, the negative will fade into the background. And I think just to build on that and to tie out my, my thoughts on this, I think sometimes we conflate different terms as synonyms, but they are not. I think that within Latter-day Saint circles, there's a lot of meaning um, sometimes charge meaning around the idea of being contentious, like the spirit of contention, you know, other people are, are really, you know, if there's contention, then the spirit can't be there, right? Like, you know, God's blessing can't be upon that conversation or that encounter. And so I think a lot of people can get really anxious and timid and tiptoe around this type of act, you know, activism or, or action because they see it as contentious, combative, or they're scared of the church censoring them, right? I think there is this fear of, oh man, what if the top-down people don't have space for that? But whereas, you know, it could be counseling, consulting with, conversing, collaborating, and there isn't really procedural, there isn't precedence for this. And, and I think maybe that's a seed where we can plant next, right? Is recognizing that there's a lot of more history from top-down and stuff changing that way. But from bottom up, there isn't as much. Right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Well, I mean, I guess that's, you know, my, my, my thoughts go to like, well, what is that just baked into our DNA as a people and like trying to start an, a grassroots activist movement amongst LDS people is like, grinding your gears. Like you're going to burn yourself out doing that. Right. Is it in our DNA that we're just kind of timid and we don't want to rock the boat too much because there isn't as precedent within our community or is it, we just haven't found the right issue. We haven't found the right messaging. It, you know, I, you know, so that's where my thoughts are going. No, I had a, um, I had a classmate in graduate school because she was really, really prepared to have me like not do the forest environmental science side of my program. And she sat me down and little did I know she had been a consultant for years and she was ready to pull all of her skills on me. And after talking with me a little bit, she says, you know what, Anna, usually in every type of society, there are four types of people. And there are activists, there are community builders, there are leaders. And I can't remember the fourth one, but it was there and she threw a box. But activists are the ones who you were saying they burn out really quickly, right? Because it's all hands on deck. There's the community builders, there's the, right, there's, healthy ecosystem is one that is biodiverse. And I think in terms of our religious ecosystem, we need to have energy flows coming from all different directions. And I think maybe that's where the stagnancy comes. Um, you know, and maybe that timidity, I don't know if it's built into the DNA. Maybe, I think, you know, culturally, I think that's kind of a thing. Um, 
And I don't think it's unique to this, to this religious tradition either. Yeah, no, I I certainly don't think it's unique to us. It's a human problem for sure. Right. And we think, you know, yeah, there's a level of feeling like I can only reach so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I want to say something about playing the long game, right? Because I think Mm -hmm. that, uh, I think that there's, especially if we're thinking just environmental, you know, forget the faith community aspect of it. Um, there's what, what part of the puzzle are we working on? Right. Because as far as climate action is concerned, there's a lot of short, short term kind of work that can be done, but there's also a lot of long-term restructuring, reimagining of society that needs to be done. Right. And I think I, you know, I think that a lot of, um, real change happens slowly. Right. And so if we want to change a community, it's going to happen slowly. Like that's just the way of the way of the world. Right. And so we, we kind of play this long game, but I wonder, I wonder if we shortchange the present sometimes when we want to, when we play the long game so intently. Does that make? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, this is interesting. Um, Yeah, this is interesting because I've been thinking about, I mean, you kind of gave me some ideas to think through in preparation for this conversation. And I feel like focusing so much on the long game is like focusing only on the answer to the equation. Um, and, and I feel like it's an equation without imagination sometimes. A plus B equals C, 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 C. We're so focused on C and, and you're working backwards from there and it can get very black and white thinking there when it's very solution focused you know, maybe you can get out of the black and white binary. It can be very red and green or purple and orange. I don't know, whatever the opposite is. But I think when you bring up imagination, um, religious texts and stories and communities can be deep, deep reservoirs of spiritual imagination. And there's this integration with story. Studies show that people do not respond to facts. They respond, they respond to story. And so there's a focus on the A plus B. Do the A plus B. You're focusing on the process and what happens in that space. And I think it can be really tough in the sense that, um, you know, religious narratives like to provide a, a modicum of certainty, right? Focusing on where you end up after you die, right? Or what, or what are the best things you need to do to show up fully ready, you know, eat to church each Sunday or whatever it is. But what if we took away those endpoints and just be like, there's no C, just focusing on A and B, just to be a good person, just to, like this is a way to live life. I think, yeah, I mean, I, I get stuck there sometimes. I was that annoying kid in seminary that was like, if you're only obeying commandments to go to the like celestial kingdom, don't you think that's kind of like wrong? And the, you know, the seminary teacher was like, we're not going there. <laughs> be quiet. Well, so, you know, you say that, but we had, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Adam Miller, Adam S. Miller, who, uh, like letters to young Mormon or an early resurrection. We had him yeah, on yeah. an episode last season and, um, to talk about, uh, his book, the, a brief theological introduction to the book of Mormon within the book of Mormon. Um, and his whole approach is, you know, how, how can we live as Christians in, pre- in preparation for the end of the world? Um, very eschatological, um, but we, we kind of talked about how actively right now we are living through the end of the world in a lot of ways, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's climate change, um, and how can our approach to being Christian help us live through that better? Um, and, uh, and we, we kind of talked about how, um, in environmental circles, we are so, uh, 
or what was the solution focused or like end result focused, right? Mm -hmm. Sustainability. Yeah. We miss out on that. The work itself might be worth doing just for the sake of doing it. Right. That the, the doing the work itself might work on us and change us and that the, the, the solution will just take care of itself. Right. C will take care of itself if we can just focus on A and B. And it was a very like present centered, like, or present focused approach and very mystical and kind of wisdom approach to sustainability. <laughs> um, I'm all here for that. I mean, that's, this is interesting because my first year in graduate school, my friend was like, Oh, here's a fellowship. You can get a scholarship to buy textbooks. I was like, cool. I'll apply. And it was based out of Michigan and it was a fellowship, um, for environmental scientists who also happen to be Christian, mm-hmm. right? And it's just a place to get like support and building up that you ended up being a Christian person who was studying something in environmental biology, something like that. So I apply and the director emails me and he's like, I read your application with great interest. Can we have a phone call before I decide? I was like, sure. And I get on the phone and this professor um, was professor of world religions. And for his doctorate dissertation, he had written on uh, the evolution of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints wow. and how, you know, and he had never ever worked with a Mormon before. Yeah. Right. And he was like, you are the first Latter-day Saint to come through. And he says, you know, I've watched the church with great, great interest. Right. And I would love to hear from you what you think you offer differently to this conversation in Christianity. Right. And we accept all denominations in Christianity, but go. I was like, oh, okay, okay. You know, and, and I talked about um, the main idea that resonated with him uh, was I talked about, you know, word of wisdom, you know, the kind of like dietary codes, other things. But the idea that as Latter-day Saints, we should be considering the earth not as a place we are renting. It's like a home you buy. It's like home ownership in the sense that we, are, we see this earth as playing out a bigger role after a mortal life ends. Right. We don't need to dive into that, you know, too deeply, but he was really, really fascinated by that. And I think that there's a sense that if we have this sense of living on this earth and being really present to what it is now, that will help us for that C, right? It's the A and B that we're here for, you know, or anyway, he liked it. I got the fellowship. It was great, but you know, but it was very interesting that I found myself talking about like Latter-day Saints see the final destination of the planet. It was this kind of like space doctrine thing, but not yeah. really. Um, Cosmic Mormonism applied to yeah. mundane daily living. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he was like, you know, we don't have time to, you know, harp on differences, like come, we need this. I love this perspective of this longevity that allows you to be very, very present. It allows you to be very focused on the A plus B because um, you're not so focused on life beyond, you know, heaven is somewhere else. Um, so yeah, it kind of turns the focus back into where your feet are currently. Switching gears just a touch. Um, going back to kind of sacred text, um, some of the methodologies that, so we've kind of been talking about like strategies, mm-hmm. I guess, of, or like, you know, behavioral quirks of kind of LDS centered faith based stewardship. Um, but some of the methodologies that I've seen, um, and I know that these are not unique to LDS communities are not unique to LDS earth communities either. But the first one I'd call proof texting, 
Um, proof texting is, can you give us a, you know, a kind of a, a high level? What oh, you want I do? me to define it? Oh, yeah, you're okay. the academic here, not me. I'm, I oh just have gosh, a bachelor's you're... degree. I'm still pretty dumb. <laughs> um, no, we all have the same experience, life experience, yeah, yeah, no yeah, matter yeah, yeah. what rooms you're sitting as you're learning it. But, yeah, yeah. um, I would define it, um, as referencing something without any context mm-hmm. and not just no context, but no relationship. Interesting. No relationship. Can you unpack that like, one? Would you define it in that way? You know, like you're quoting just a single verse to prove a point. Right, right. Right. And not looking at the trajectory of the story that it's embedded in. Right, right. Okay. Um, or how that verse has been. Is is that a correct understanding yeah. of proof texting? No, that's exactly, yeah, what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, yeah, yeah. Well, I just, I kind of what, you know, I think some of our we're in the literature review phase, right? And I think some of our, our first faltering steps that we've done with a lot of that work is we're like, we're going to proof text, um, which is like, we're going to, we're going to show you all these verses that are in support of our cause. Um, and, uh, we're going to use it as a way to kind of, uh, use scripture as a leverage point to bend behavior to what we want it to be. Hmm. Right. And even though like, I don't think that that like what we're doing is actually proof texting, right? Because I think the more context you find in the scriptures, the more you see that earth centered stewardship is actually central to the entire thing. And so I don't think you can actually rip some of these verses out of context and have them mean something completely different. Right. But I, I guess the, uh, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is maybe what I might call guilt texting. Right. Um, where, uh, I think I Googled that word. Did I you? I made it up. Did you I make that up? 100% <laughs> made it up. <laughs> so it's like, no one has written about this. It's, some no. okay. it's a total Madisonism, but like, I, you know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, growing up LDS, like how often was, was scripture used as a weapon against me to try and change my behavior. Right. Um, that mm. we, uh, regardless of the effectiveness of this, you know, whether or not it's effective, like, I think it's something that we do to each other, which is we throw verses at each other to try and prove ourselves. Right. And maybe not weapon. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're right. These, so this is interesting. Cause you talk about the use of words or, you know, using them as tools instead of processes. Right. And, and I want to return back to the relationship part of this because I think religious texts originated always in relationship, not only with people in the communities, but with landscapes, people looking up and wondering how does that great light in the sky keep rising above those mountains every day? Or how does this water keep coming in with the tides, right? I mean, just this deep wonder people start to, to petition, to pray, to meditate, to write, um, you know, so, so these religious texts always formed in relationship with people, landscapes, animals, ecosystems, cosmos, right? There's always this relationship and orientation. And I think what proof texting does is it decontextualizes um, and it objective, it's something that brings me to a term called objectified knowledge. So you think of, of objecting a person or um, objecting a woman. You're looking at her as just this object. And you brought up Thomas Berry, wonderful geologian and Trappist monk. And um, and he brought that, you know, the world is indeed a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. And the reason he said that is because when when we objectify knowledge or people, places, things, land, um, what happens is, so for example, some examples of objectified knowledge, a peyote, 
with the Native American peoples in the North American continent um, in the 1980s, peyote became really popular. Um, and a lot of people outside the indigenous communities of the North American continent began to use this without recognizing the, the historical context. And this was always done ceremonially led by elders in a small group. Um, we see this happening with traditional Chinese medicine. We see this happening with yoga. It's a form of meditation, but now in the West, we see this as a form of exercise, right? It's physical instead of mental. So we see this, this is the consequence in a historical engagement with any type of indigenous, religious, spiritual practices. It loses its gravity in this intergenerational grounding, right? Because we've objectified it. We've taken out of its relationship, not only with others and whatever that other might be, it might be land people, but also with ourselves. And so I think when you were saying about like weaponizing, often it was just unidirectional, right? People using verses to project at you or teach to you, but not using it to self-reflect and say, you know, we are both being told something by this, by this verse or whatever it is, the guilt texting. But I think that comes to this lack of, maybe not a lack of, but a failure, you know, Willie Jennings, he's a theologian from Yale Divinity School. He was a guest lecturer at Brigham University like a year and a half ago, and he was speaking there and he was saying that it is a failure of the imagination. Christianity all throughout has this failure of the imagination and that we've ceased to imagine these deep relationships, mm -hmm. right? In, in these not only positive relationships, but also problematic ones. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of my response to proof texting, guilt texting. And yeah. it's an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate kind of pattern we have. Yeah. Right? I mean, I, I recognize that as a human pattern, right? It just takes on unique flavors inside of, inside of our LDS community. I know. Right. And there's that whole, like, there's so many beautiful promises to that, right? Likening scripture unto ourselves. And there's this deep empowerment that people have, but the problem, the problem side of that, it, it can be used to weaponize or hyper-essentialize or objectify yeah. um, knowledge. And I think that, you know, part of in being in part of environmental work so, or circles is the like social justice is a big part of that too, right? And so this whole like, we want to build towards a better tomorrow is like, well, I have a utopic vision of the future. And that means we need to leave some of these weapons in the past, right? And that means yeah. that as I'm working towards creating that future, I can't use these weapons that have been used against us, like guilt texting, like proof texting, right? Like I can't use those weapons to build the better future. Right. So like I, I need to, you know, when you, when you talk about proof texting rips verses from their stories that they, that they come from. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, in the doctrine and covenants or, or the word of wisdom, you know, it says something about like eat meat sparingly, but like if you were to put that verse into a greater story, a greater, you know, spiritual context of the, the, you know, a more robust ta uh, appraisal of the LDS canon, it might be more effective than just throwing that verse at someone. Yeah, right. I, I mean, th there's a great, I, you see why people gravitate toward it because it's efficient and it's short and it proves a point. But again, it's a solution focused. I want to prove C. So here's this to back it up. And I think that in terms of it, I think it's really important, Madison, that we've had this stage in this period as, as members of this faith globally, this literature review stage of just seeing all these verses and an important part is not just cataloging them, but putting them into relationship with each other. Yeah. Right? Putting them so, into story with each other. Yeah. Ooh, that's really good. I like that. Um, th 
this is, I'm really glad we've had this conversation so far. Um, this is glad you're recording it. I'm really glad I'm recording. It. <laughs> the only way I can talk to you is if you record the conversation. Um, uh, I think the, one of the other methods, uh, and we've already kind of alluded to the LDS community being intensely hierarchical, right. Mm-hmm. Is this appeal to authority that like, I, you know, in a lot of these LDS, uh, earth, stewardship circles that I'm, that I'm working in these coalition circles, like the white whale that we're working towards is getting someone from the embedded within church hierarchy to say something more robustly about like earth What's stewardship. What's a white right? whale? What does that image do you want to come from? Uh, Moby Dick. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. I haven't read it. Oh, <laughs> who's the academic now? I haven't actually read it. <laughs> I know your email should be like Madison Daniels at gmail.edu. You just schooled me anyway. Um, but captain Ahab is chasing Moby Dick, the white whale. Right. And he ends right. up wasting himself away trying to, and he ends up yeah. getting killed by the whale. Um, but that I feel like we're, we, we chase kind of, uh, an appeal to authority as though it were the end all be all solution to our problem. Totally, totally. When I don't think it is, you know, I've spent oh, a lot I'm of time. I'm not saying it is the end all solution. No, I'm yeah. just agreeing with you. Yeah, because like, that as if it is. Yeah, because right? I, you know, doing this job for three years now, like I chased that whale for a long time. I was having, you know, I gave presentations to public affairs department. I, I met with a lot of people in the history department. Like I met with some people in some high up rooms and stuff, but like it didn't go anywhere. Are you sure? Okay. Well, no, I'm not sure because I, I can't, <laughs> I can't know all the, all the, the, the ends of all of my actions. Um, but, but I guess no one has said anything in conference about it, you know? And I think that's the thing that we're, that we're chasing, right? Right. I know. I know. I, I totally see. Right. And it's been very interesting when I was at that semester, I went to the spiral jetty. Yeah. That's when, um, the church very first ever put anything up about caring about the earth Mm -hmm. on its website. And I remember just being ecstatic. Oh my gosh, this is such a big deal. Right. And there was this, I've been noticing this interesting trajectory and it has always been geared toward, wouldn't it be so cool if there's a general conference message and not only in general conference, but it has to come not from one of the quorum of the 12. It needs to come not from the counselors and the first, it has to come from the prophet, right? Because people that has the most, and again, can you blame them? an amazing, impressive efficiency, this assembly line of just efficiency that happens when it comes from that, that the person who um, embodies, right, that that direct voice to us. And I think that appeal to authority is, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. I think, I think people, again, they shy away from the insufficiencies because they don't want to be seen as criticizing yeah. or being um, contentious. Yeah. Right. Again, (laughs) again, there's more skeptical of authority. Yeah. Necessary, but not sufficient. Right. And I think that this brings me to the kind of the duality of strengths and weaknesses. I think a big strength of the church in some ways is top-down revelation that can really put things in action very quickly. Capital S strength. Um, Personal revelation is very much emphasized. I would say that's a lower capital, lowercase S strength. Um, you know, but again, personal revelation, top-down revelation, I think where maybe a weak spot might be, might be in collective revelation. Receiving and, and discerning, right, collective or communal action with your neighbor. Or your like grassroots or your, revelation. Yeah. I, I mean, just working, working together, right, in this community 
and having that type of collaboration with church leadership and representing, you know, these are where our petitions are. This is what we're coming to. And again, this isn't, we've had instances of this very successfully done in um, our, our current church history and also in broader Christianity history and the history of Judaism too, right? People coming from the grassroots and speaking to authority. But I think that is a weakness. I think, I think that that place between personal revelation and churchwide revelation, um, I think people don't know how to act and they freeze up. Yeah. Maybe not. No, I, I do. Right? I, I, yeah. I get really cautious. I'm like, oh. <laughs> no, I, I genuinely do because it's like I have ideas for like things that could be done, but I don't want to render render my voice useless by by being branded <laughs> as a as, by being like like publicly branded as a heretic. Oh yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, but there's there's that history of that that I think. Um, I, I do think there are a lot of indications though that that the church is. Um, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine mm-hmm. and we're dear, dear friends. And we similar career path for the same graduate program, weird two degrees at the same time. But her mm. background was in Franciscan Catholicism. Oh my gosh. My heart. She's the best. I um, love Franciscanism. Uh, yeah. No, but she, uh, we were talking about, you know, kind of comparing notes on just being within these religious traditions that we find a lot of restorative, inspiring aspects from but then also being very hierarchical. And sometimes that can, that can lead to you feeling like your voice doesn't count. And if it does, it can only reach so far. And this friend uh, shared something with me that I thought was so wise. And I think about it all the time. She said, I think the closer you get to positions of power, the slower the momentum gets there. Right? Like thinking of a whirlpool or something like that. If you're at the edges, it can be seen to move a lot faster right, on those margins. But when you get closer to those positions of power and leadership, things just move at a different pace. Um, and I thought about that a lot. That sometimes that appeal to authority, it seems like we're making all these appeals and nothing's happening. But what if they're just moving like an inch for every mile we run? I don't know. What if it's like general relativity and they're just really close to a black hole? And <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, but I think I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. And I think yeah. that something very soon will come on the horizon that will be um, something to very much celebrate um, and be exciting, you know, for yeah. Latter-day Saints. Um, it's just something I don't think the church can afford to not engage with. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's... Part of playing the the long game problem to me is is like it feels like we don't have an, we don't have as much time left to like really make some sizable changes in the way that we do business on Earth, um, and so it's like that that time slippage, you know, that momentum slippage between the the margins and the center just it feels really aggravating sometimes because because it feels like we're work we're against the clock right now with environmental problems and that and that. The, the sooner we act, the more we can mitigate problems and the later we act. So I know that it's not like, it's not a black and white, like the world is going, they're going to be on fire or we're going to live in a utopia. I know there's like hundreds both, of, if you're Mormon, you are both, <laughs> uh, but I feel like I know that there's a hundred different scenarios in between that we can end our, end up in, but I'd rather be on the more utopic end of that. And I feel like we need to act quicker. And so that's where some of my frustration comes with like chasing with chasing the whale of, of authority in, in kind of LDS circles, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Right. I think there's, and this exists with the credentialing, mm-hmm. you know, and a broader in the environmental and religious sphere, yeah. right. Um, there's this credentialing that has to happen in order for you to attend any kind of dialogue session at the United Nations. 
on religion and environment, you need to have been accepted as a participant. There's this credentialing process that goes on. And I think some people feel like in order for certain arguments or ideas to have traction, they need to go through the credentialing process first. And that, that's a, that limits a lot, right? And I think that's where the appeal authority comes from. I think it's a vestige of these models of credentialing. Yeah, of like white, white hierarchical male power is 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 kind of is is all about broader, that. bigger history of colonialism, exploitation, yeah, yeah. Um, supremacy. Yeah, right. It's power. It's it's who holds the talking stick? Yeah, yeah. <sighs> <laughs> I know, I know. It's so good. the thing is that like I think th- there's so many opportunities for us to exist in this space with hope and accountability. Like grief, like for example, we started off talking about death, right? Um, death, I noticed that a lot of people get very uncomfortable around funerals, right? And they feel like people are split. No, it shouldn't be called a funeral. It should be called an end of life celebration, right? And I'm like, you know what, guys? Grief and celebration do not have to be mutually exclusive. exclusive. There is eco-anxiety, this anxiety in the timeliness of what's going to happen, you can act with accountability and at the same time find deep restoration and deep inspiration from that act, right? I don't think you have to be exclusive to each other. And that's the middle ground I think you were talking about. One of my last kind of observations, and this is just maybe a personal thing of mine, mm-hmm. right? Is that I just don't think we're thinking big enough, right? Like, I think, uh, you know, here's a list of things that I made that are, that are good, right? These are good things to be striving for, but I don't think we're thinking big enough, right? Like recycling in meeting houses, in church meeting houses, like recycling sacrament cups. Ah, you know, I, I love that idea. I love the initiative. I love the energy of that, but like, it's not going to save the world. Um, regional Mm -hmm. landscaping and better water usage. Like, yeah. Okay. I like, I like the energy of that, but like at the end of the day, it's not going to save the world. Solar panels on Madison's hit list. Keep going. <laughs> solar, I love this. Solar panels on church buildings or sustainability specialists as a calling. Like I, th- these are all things that I hear kicked around, you know, sustainability, faith, LDS circles. And to me, they just, they lack imagination. Mm. And like, I know that they are good stepping stones, but I, I feel like our, our desire for these things are, is shortchanging our future. And so this is maybe a reversal of that, of the playing the long game thing where it's like playing the long game shortchanges our present. But like, I feel like our, our insistence on some of these, these little tiny things are help are making us blind to what we could potentially be asking for. If that makes sense. Yeah. And, and does it have to be either or? Because Madison, I think these yeah. are necessary things that also have to happen. If that is not the theme of the world, if maybe it's maybe it's both. <laughs> right. I mean, well, you can't you can't go into an ecosystem and say, I only yeah. want a tree. Yeah. Nothing else. Because it needs the soil, it needs the water, it needs the birds to, to pass the seeds. You can't even say I just need one type of tree. So there have to be this healthy ecosystem has to have stuff at every level and at every size. And so I think you did talk about some things that can be smaller. Right. And those are more like the, the practical solutions, you know, like technological solutions. And, and I think, you know, addressing recycling, you know, just a personal academic interest of mine, which I would love to pursue somehow is just people's engagement with waste and garbage. 
you know, I, I don't think of a dump when I think of spiritual places that I, you know, I told you I'm going <laughs> and hiking through forests. I'm yeah. not going and communing with my garbage. Like, You're not going to Gehenna. Right. Right. But, but I think there's a deep place that, um, you know, when you think of Judas Iscariot, when he went and took his life, he went to that place outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna, which historically was the place where all of the waste and trash went. Right. And it symbolized Gehenna, Gehenna symbolized um, the worst place you wanted to be. And a lot of times when we decide that something isn't worth our time to take care of or manage, we send it to trash anyway. So I, I just have this whole thing about, you know, it, it can be really, these small things can be important if we connect them to the bigger things that we're looking for. Right. So, I mean, I would love to think through some of those bigger ideas. Yeah. Well, I think right now is a great time. I think where I want to transition to what is the next step in faith-based earth stewardship? Right. Cause like, I think of, of what this first step of the literature review, right. Has been surveying our faith and our, our, our like sacred yeah. texts and our faith tradition to be like, what here can apply to the problem that we're, that we're working on. But then I wonder if the second half of this is how can we draw upon the earth to address our faith, right. And our crises of faith. And I think that that is something that I'm really excited about. Um, where, you know, I think it's obvious that the churches in the Western world are dying. Brian McLaren, um, calls it the great shrinkling, which it means shrinking. They're both shrinking and they're, they're wrinkling means, means they're getting smaller and they're getting older. Um, mm. and in a small talk that I gave to the Episcopal diocese of Utah, I wrote that the next sac- next to sacred text and tradition, the earth is perhaps our greatest ally in the greater spiritual trans- transformation of humankind. And so I think we need to viscerally demonstrate that the earth slash nature slash wilderness is an essential piece of healthy spirituality and that we would never spiritually recover if we let the earth go to waste. Uh, amen. Wow. That, that is so powerful. Madison, I just, I'm so glad you've been, and I, this isn't the first time I've heard some of this idea from you, right? That we need to have this dimension of our healthy spiritual practice that includes beyond what's happening in our minds and hearts, right? It's what's happening with our bodies, right? As they're out, you know, this embodied type of engagement with the, with the earth, right? I know you talk about that in terms of rewilding or the wild places or the webinar that you facilitated that I was on. It was on like wild faith, you know, this, this idea of embracing um, what is beyond us physically, right? As part of us, as part of that community. Um, absolutely. There are so many ways to go about this because I think a lot of times when people talk about nature, earth, environment, being part of our spirituality, it can very, very easily get into a sanitized place of privileged nature spirituality, where it's a wealthy person of privilege, usually white, going out into nature. Wearing Patagonia, driving a Subaru. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And it's, it's going out of the city, right? Yeah. You're not in an urban place. It's very safe, right? Yeah. But a lot of times, if you are in those places and you don't have the filter of your privilege between you and nature, it can be very scary. And, and this idea that you need to go out there um, to encourage something in here in your heart, this kind of transformation is, again, it's reperpetuating that system of separation, right? I mean, Thomas Berry has a series of sermons where he talks about us situating ourselves in the ecosystems of skyscrapers and cities, right? We can develop the same type of deep rewilding, whatever it is you want to term it, this deep embodied 
engage it with our ecology. I mean, this can happen in urban places too. You don't have to have the privilege of going out to a forest that's trees. So I think, yeah, it is there. And, and I think maybe the next stage is, you know, there's a book that was really influential for me. It's called Worldly Wonder, Religions Enter the Ecological Phase. You know, and it, what was that term you used about the, the wrinkling? Uh, shrinkling? Shrink, the great shrinkling of religions becoming older and smaller. Um, there is some truth to that, but I wonder if religions are just perhaps becoming more contextualized, mm-hmm. right? Um, religions entering the ecological phase, right? And becoming not the only, the only organism in their ecosystem. They're one of many, right? Hmm. I, I wonder, I wonder if that's the way we want to look at it too. And that maybe that, I don't know. Huh. That's really, in, I, I like that, especially in context of interfaith work. I know. But here's the thing, like when I, um, going back to strengths and weaknesses, um, I was always told as an undergrad, play to your strengths, play to your strengths, right? I wanted to do an honor thesis. I said, play to your strengths, don't write on anything else. Even though you have all these interests, just kind of like pick the smoothest path forward and play to your strengths. Um, When I was applying to graduate school, I met with a professor at Harvard when I was working in Boston and he said, play to your strengths. You can only do environmental stuff after tenure, after you're a professor, you go to doctor <laughs> school. And I was like, hmm, our planet's going to be blown up by then. You know, like, <laughs> I, but it was always play to your strengths. And once you get enough credentialing, yeah. then you can play on your, play on your weaknesses. But it was really interesting um, just going to this. And I promise this as a point, Madison. But in my orientation at Yale School of Forestry, the dean stood up and she said, look at everyone around you. Like we picked everyone in this room because you were all different. And a water scientist is going to have to lean on a soil scientist who is going to have to lean on a social scientist who is pursuing environmental justice, who's going to have to pursue, you know, animal, animal rights, right? All of you are going to need to, to need each other and depend on each other. And I remember listening to her saying this and I was like, this would not go down very well in the divinity school. Right? Like, right? I just knew that like the Wesleyans would get so mad being told that they had to depend on as Episcopalians, right? Yeah. Or like heaven forbid, they find out the token environmentalist in their classroom is also a Mormon, right? I mean, there's like, <laughs> but just yeah. this idea that we need each other and that um, our weaknesses can be an asset. And so I think we, if we think bigger, I wonder if there might be some way that we can imagine along the vein of, you know, the book of ether chapter 12, right? Weaknesses and strengths, right? And having weak things becoming strong unto us. I mean, I would love for our church culture, um, both on an individual grassroots level and also on an institutional level, being unafraid of looking to and sitting in our weak spots so we can flourish. Sitting in those places with what isn't working, like what needs to happen or, you know, environmental engagement that doesn't also remain accountable to and find rest- restoration for historical injustices to people is never going to be complete. I mean, I wish I just imagined that, and I don't know what it would look like. I don't know what the simultaneous celebration and accountability would look like. Because people see them as exclusive to each other, but it needs to have this oh man, this is a really weak spot, but it means this is a place where we can have a lot of restoration happening spiritually and like ecologically. 
Yeah, well, like a truth and reconciliation process, right? Where we can we can honestly appraise our faults and our weaknesses while we can kind of set a better heading for a future. You know, I think about like Vatican II. Like I would love a Salt Lake too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, do all your listeners want Vatican II? I mean, Vatican, uh, maybe they don't. How do you understand it? Uh, how I understand Vatican II was that the Catholic Church recognized it needed to move into the the new century. Right. And so it kind of, at least how I've heard it from like Richard Rohr and some of the Franciscan school was that, mm-hmm. that the Pope told all, all these like religious orders to go back to their founders and to like, uh, get back in touch with your roots. And, and it kind of, is that when they democratized the mass where they, they let people speak the mass in their own languages yeah, instead of language. Latin right. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, granted, I don't think Vatican II was a genuine truth and reconciliation process, but I think it was kind of a, uh, a, a, a 2.0. Yeah. It was a necessary step. And I think one thing from Vatican II that was just so enlightening is that it was the first time the Catholic church church had said the other religions have light in them. Yeah. Right. And, it, and it's interesting. It's Thomas Ferry who brought it before he was writing for years saying the other, all these religious traditions have rays of light. They are flooded with light. And I think, um, you know, I was listening to a podcast last year where, you know, in my research group, we have our own podcast series and we interview different professors and scholars doing work at the nexus of religion and, and ecology. Mm-hmm. And he was interviewing one professor and she made this offhand comment about, you know, I think that actually the Mormon church has the most potential to do the greatest good or the greatest damage globally in terms of environmental. And I was like, wow. what? I had to like pause <laughs> my car. I had to like pull over to the side of the road and I re-listened to it. And I was like, why does she say that? And I, I, I want to reach out to that professor, right? Wow. I want to reach out and say like, can we have a conversation? Because I think we do we sit at this precipice where we have this church that is this beautiful, deep connection to historical story, but then also this forward looking propensity for revelation and newness and change, right? And that seems to be a tug war with each other, the security and safety and stability of things that don't change but then the newness and imagination of things that are always changing. And there's also that part of, you know, us recognizing truth where it stands, right? This credibly deep openness. And I think that our, you know, our church is a great promising space to not have to recreate the will in all these things. It can, it can be a really wonderful place to continue to build and not see our weaknesses as places to hide or cover up or ignore, or just ignore away, but they can be places for us to engage with other, not only religious traditions, but ecological restoration, environmental scientists as a place to, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm thinking about the a phrase spiritual ecology, right? Like, I think we've already kind of mm-hmm. referenced this, that like, if, if, you know, the, 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 fa- the era we're leaving is a lit- literature review and the era we're potentially entering is this ecological, um, you know, review, I don't know what the phrase you you used, but just this, this era of interdependence and interrelatedness. Um, it makes me think of Robin Wall Kimmerer's, um, braiding sweetgrass, you know, about a a gift economy, right? That what, what are our gifts and what can we bring to the table? And, you know, I think as we've referenced in this conversation, the gift of the LDS church is efficiency. It's, it's institutional, Mm -hmm. like institutional power. I don't think it's being wielded very well right now, but I think if it was, if it, if it turned on a dime, it could be wielded wildly efficiently for the good of all mankind. 
Um, and I think that is, that is one of our gifts. And so this idea of spiritual ecology is like, we need to, you know, Vatican II, go back to our founders, go back to our gifts and bring those gifts to the table and accept our weaknesses and also bring those weaknesses to the table so that they can be filled by the strengths of others. Amen. I love that. No, I, I mean, I think there is a time, I think after a literature review, there's a deep discussion and finding mm-hmm. right now after, usually after the literature review, um, you identify the gaps, the gaps in literature and where you need to work. And after comes the experiment, they're, they're experimenting. So I think what we're going to see in the next future is a lot of experimenting, people trying different strategies, looking what's happening. And it's, we're troubleshooting. Yeah. And I mean, there's going to be a, a period of troubleshooting and just experimenting and trying to figure it out. And maybe that's perpetually what we're doing forever and ever. I'm not sure. I mean, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, there's, I mean, I mean, okay. Like, yeah. I mean, I have this whole theory that like, if, if we think of our spiritual momentum, like a healthy ecosystem, the repentance part could be, you know, compared to how a tree adapts to different weather patterns and soil and other things. But I think we're in this series of, you know, we have this, all this robust foundation and now we're going to be troubleshooting, experimenting, adapting. We're going to be trying to do that. And and I'm excited to see that going forward, but I also know that it's, it's necessary things to do, but it's not going to be sufficient. Right. I I don't, there has to be a way where um, our religious tradition can very consciously um, hold hands and, you know, together, um, come up with some shared solutions because, you know, religious ideas are porous, right? They filter into other systems and it's the same with ecosystems, right? Water just doesn't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm getting tired. Sorry. No, it's, I, I like, you know, where your, where your head is at. Um, cause I, I like to just take cues from the natural world, right? That the, the natural world is, is a sacred text to some degree. Right. And, and nature tries trial and error. That's how evolution functions. That's how nature functions. Right. And how can we think we can function any differently than that? Um, when that's kind of the pattern of reality. Yeah. I mean, um, there is a practice and I don't want to objectify this, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to speak out of it too much out of context, but in the, um, I don't even want to say it. Um, there is a practice in an indigenous community where youth in, in a rite of passage are encouraged to go out um, alone for a series of days and to be fasting for food and water. And they're supposed to be during this fasting experience, learning from the land around them, right? Looking to that land as, as, um, as worthy of regard and, and something to teach you. And I think that relationship is there, right? Where's that? Imagine if our fast, our monthly fast Sundays, right? Included this. And it was looking to this landscape and seeing what does this teach you about um, your role in this ecosystem? What does this teach you about your potential? Um, And the lessons are there, but I think you're right, Madison. I think looking um, and seeing those things is so important. There's an artist called Anthony Tapia's. And he talks about looking and looking deeply, right? And as you're looking, being willing to be transformed by the power of your gaze. And as we're looking and deeply resonating with the things that we are engaging with, we can be transformed. I think that's the whole purpose. It's, it's that process of transformation that I think um, 
holds the most power. Yeah. So I want to, um, not monopolize all your time tonight. So we should probably bring this to a close. Um, but one, I think what you just brought up was imagine if our fast Sundays, um, included like nature walks and, and not just, not just like nature walks, like, Oh, I'm just going to go on a hike and not think about anything, but like a very intentional, um, engagement, purposeful. intentional, purposeful engagement with nature while you were fasting to try and glean something from the world around you. Right. Like I, so I, I love that idea. And I think that, you know, if, if recycling sacrament cups is, is transitional and maybe too small, um, what's, what's thinking big, you know, what's thinking big. And I think that the, including the earth in our liturgical practices, um, might be thinking big. Right. And so I'm wondering if you have any ideas about what are some like big dream projects, like pie in the sky kind of things that could be very purposeful or transformational inside of Mormonism. Um, there's so many things, right. And <laughs> I would say, I would say I wouldn't feel comfortable doing a big picture project unless it was grounded and anchored by all these small things. Yeah. Right. It would have to be anchored to the, the sacrament cups. You bring yeah. up, I know you bring that up. As I like mean, I know I'm, I'm like, I'm very, I'm very making that in jest, but I like, I think it is an important step in the process. 100%. Because it's a universal one. Yeah. Right. Um, not all churches are built the same or the other things, but we do have the individual sacrament cups, right. Thinking of just shared symbolism across. Um, oh man, there's so many big things. I mean, and that's the thing is that I know that even for as much as I talk about imagination, uh, I sometimes, if I get these big ideas, I, I'm not sure where to put them, right? Sometimes I, I write them down and I jot them down, but I'm like, you know what? I'm never going to be the one to speak from the pulpit about this, right? Like I'm a woman, you know, and women, women, you know, they aren't in church leadership. So my ideas can only reach so far. And sometimes I get in that type of defeatist or non-imaginative thinking, um, on that aside, you can cut that out. But um, <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I would love for ways for the church to engage with the marginalized in their communities, mm -hmm. right? Racially, economically, socially. And that was considered a part of the ecological stewardship. I wish it was integrated, right? I, I would wish that there were was um, more uh, institutional integration with poverty alleviation, Um I, I think a really fun thing that all church properties, churches, you know, something I learned from UNEP is that religions are one of the biggest landowners globally. And the LDS church is a significant landowner in the United States. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know how much, you know, or whatever that is, but I think in terms of church properties, you know, that, that landscape can be used as more of a working garden, right? Primary children could be doing, gardening outside the churches. <laughs> I mean, I think that'd be so cool. Just, just having it be like ecosystem training or, um, food, right. Breaking bread together, sharing meals with people. I think that's deeply, deeply transformative. And as members of the church, we experience it very much in a ritual context every Sunday, but I think, um, connecting people through food, that that's a very, very powerful thing. But I think Madison, once you take out that human dimension, from our consideration of the earth, I mean, you're, you're, miss, you're missing its, its heart and lungs, right? And once you cut out the, 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 the built dimension too, the built environment, most of the world's population lives in cities. 
right? And we, we can't expect people to go out of them. So I, I don't know. I think I see this integration on every level of church age groups, primary youth, youth programs, um, missions, missionary program. Oh my goodness. Getting that labor to do ecological work and restoration. Yeah. Right. I mean, that could be really cool. I would I serve mean, another mission if I, if it was. <laughs> yes. The types of dreams. I know. I, know. I, know, I mean, and I just, and again, I know I'm not thinking big enough because I know it can always be bigger and better in, yeah. in what it can be. I mean, I think of, um, I'm not sure. What ideas do you have? Well, I know that at one point me and you had had a conversation and you'd referenced maybe if BYU had a school of divinity and ecology of like desert ecology, right? Yeah. I, I mean, building, yeah. That would be We're, super cool. I mean, super yeah. implausible, but super cool. <laughs> no, no, it, it is plausible. You think so? Right. And when you think, <laughs> well, the church, BYU, so it's interesting, like going back to procedural process, yeah. um, often ideas will happen kind of grassroots, but they'll happen at an academic conference. And you just got to be one where the church is somewhat involved or supportive, maybe Mormon history association in a year where the church history is department of church history is, is one of the um, funders. Um, and if it gains traction there, right, it'll show up maybe in some more BYU spaces. And once it's kind of validated in BYU spaces, that's when it has the most potential to enter the general conference space. So it would be really important for the church's flagship academic institution to have this very visible institutional commitment to that. Right. And, um, oh Hell, man, I'd go back been... to school. I'd go back to school and, and shave my, my facial hair off to live the honor code again, <laughs> to go to the school of divinity and desert ecology at BYU. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, the school of sustainability or however you yeah. want to call it. I mean, I would love to teach a class on like the restorative gospel and environmental. Oh my gosh. Leadership. I yes. mean, it would just, I mean, I have like, this is how nerdy I am. I'll be sitting in sacrament and I will just take ideas of like, this is what I would do for the food day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, force the students carry around bags of trash around for a yeah. week. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's great potential. I could, I could see the church being incredible. Um, the only participant, but asset in the interreligious environmental sphere, right? I mean, I just, I'm in these meetings with these incredible religious leaders regularly, globally, and they're doing such wonderful things and they're so encouraging. And then you've got the environmental advisors, you know, environmental advisor to the Pope or to the, you know, or, or to the Karmapa of Tibetan Buddhism or, you know, or these, you know, the Greek Orthodox patriarch. I mean, there's these incredible individuals they are doing so much work and what power it is to come in and say, you, know, you have all the support of insert religion here. We will do all we can to do this. Um, and I, I, I would love to have some type of Latter-day Saint engagement in those spaces. And to say, we're, we're being accountable too, and we're being responsible too. And we're, we are doing this in a way that is not just, we're not greenwashing. And I don't think the church would do that. I think it would be very much integrated. Right. And this is, this is connected to all of our other initiatives. Yeah. Well, I think another pie in the sky idea that, uh, that I would love would be, uh, the church divesting, um, it's financial portfolios from fossil fuels. Um, because, you know, just in the last three or four or five years, we've kind of gotten a window into, mm -hmm. you know, bon, not Boncom, but the Bonneville financial, anyway, whatever it's called. Oh, um, and religious, religious communities worldwide are doing this. Right? Yeah. The, the Catholic church, you know, Episcopal Anglican churches, there's this great movement. They call it operation Noah. 
Oh, really? Right? In England. It's, it's already a thing? No. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and so one thing with these courses that I helped design with Yale University, there's six courses. Yeah. Um, first was Intro to Religions and Maybe I can send you the link for that. Yeah, no, please do. Um, there's an introduction course, All World Religions and Ecology. There's Indigenous Religions and Ecology. Um, South Asian religions and ecology, East Asian religions and ecology, and Western religions and ecology. And Western, that's the term we decided to use for the Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And the final week, we talk about integrated ecology, integral ecology, um, with justice and climate and financial divestment. And so we have examples from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam of these, these financial relationships you have. And um, in the Judaism section, I loved it so much, but uh, there was a, a synagogue, I think it was based out of some place in New York state, but they started a campaign and completed it where they divested from a bank that they branded as a carbon pharaoh bank because their holdings were with a bank that was invested in fossil fuel companies, right? But they branded it in their own unique religious language as we, we can't feed in and we perpetuate you know, and they use the term Pharaoh, but I thought it was so powerful. Yeah. Right? I would so love I think, to see uh, an equivalent of that happening in Mormonism of just like kind of a grassroots movement to be like, Hey, this is our, this is our tithing money. And we don't want it to mm -hmm. be going to fossil fuels. Like please invest it. Like, you know, keep the financial portfolio going, but like put it into invest in green architecture, green things rather than like wield the, the financial might of the institution of the church for the common good of all mankind rather than just the good of the church. Yes. And I think it would go back very much. There was a reason why in the early church history, and when I say church history, I mean like this specific church, there was that impulse to want to eschew any type of capitalism, right? That this type of, you know, we were in this together. Um, it's your, you know, again, that was kind of a failed project, but the, the impulse is there. The impulse of being responsible long-term to our neighbor into our long distance neighbor, um, whether that be now or in a thousand years. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I would love to see that too. Yeah. So those are some of my thinking big ideas of like ways that we could kind of utilize the infrastructure of the church for, you know, like real good. And I know that it includes some of these smaller steps, like putting solar panels on our buildings, or recycling sacrament cups. Like I, it, it definitely includes those, but like maybe necessary, it's just, yeah, those are necessary, sufficient. necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely been a theme of our conversation as well as like, why can't it be both? <laughs> it is. It's always, and it's never, but yeah. or either, or, and I think that's just, it's connecting, it's integrating. It's, um, it's helping people understand that they don't have to choose between caring about the earth and its future or caring about their religious values, right? They can be integrated. And, and I think that's, it's the great call and invitation of our time to enter that, you know, entering our ecological phase, not changing, but just entering and, and embracing that phase where we're reintegrating. We're going back to the garden. Yeah. Ooh, it's really good language. <laughs> uh, well, Anna, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's uh, kind of, it's been really hopeful for me um, and helpful for me because I know I've, I just, it's been a wild two years, you know, and I think that I definitely have battled my share of cynicism about the the usefulness of activist work and about the, 
the changeability of institution. Um, and, uh, so I, this has been a really, uh, helpful and inspiring conversation for me to, to have. So thank you so much. Thank you, Madison. I, I so appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. I mean, you, you are, um, just on the ground, feet on the ground. You are doing this wonderful, incredible work that, you know, that, yeah, you're the anchoring, you're, you're the anchoring, you're the grounding, right? And I think religions at their very best, they orient, ground, nurture, and transform us in every way. Yeah. And so I see you doing that with your work. So well, thank, thank you for you. bringing me into that conversation. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, as kind of a final piece, uh, what yeah. are some individual or communal practices for engaging with the natural world, whether it's in your own backyard, in urban environments, or actually out in the wild? Uh, in a more in, intentional or purposeful transformational way that you could leave us with? Um, I say on an individual basis, mm -hmm. there are so many ways for the, for the sake of time. I'm just going to say one, I would say engage with your waste. Interesting. Right. But your material waste, yeah. right? Where, do, where does your trash go? Find out where your dumps are, yeah. find out where your cycling plants go, go visit it. I would say that, and, and, and to build onto that, find out where the stuff you get comes from. I would say go to whatever church building you attend and find out where the water from that building comes from, what watershed you're part of. Mm, that's right? really good. Cause our sac I mean, I sit through, I'm the person sitting through a sacrament meeting and I'm like, where did this water come from? Which watershed <laughs> did this come from? Because we're like our church uses sacrament water. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, they use water is a symbolic gesture. Yeah. So there's deep resonance and possibilities for this, the source. Oh, and even so commu like communal synergy with like water protectors of, you know, the kind mm -hmm. of indigenous peoples. Wow. So much. But I think finding the sources beyond the grocery store and then the sources, you know, the destinations beyond your garbage bin, <sighs> I think that would be the very first steps. Yeah. And then I would think, ask yourself, who do I need to connect with? Who do I need to connect with that doesn't look like me? And why am I not connected with them? And how can I? Right. And that who will lead you first to people, but it will also lead you to um, animals, trees, soil, water. I think that's where you start. So find out the sources, the destinations, and the who. That's what I would say individually. Um, so that's very much a work of deep reconciliation and deep introspection and self-reflection. I think collectively, I'd say that the main thing would be through food, sharing meals. How do we do that? Um, sharing food does not have to be exclusive. It does not have to be open only to people who believe your same religion, live it the same way you do. Um, I, I would say focus on the meals, you know, and find out again the source of where your food is coming from beyond the grocery store and um where they're going after um I, I, and there's so many ways to do this you can look at how your ear how the meat was farmed if you eat meat um if you i mean there are just so many different ways um but i would say that the communal practices i think getting together to break bread is, is a lot more powerful than we give credence to no i full agree with that. I mean, that's kind of the center of what the sacrament is. The sacrament itself is a holy meal, right? It's an agape feast. That's what it's supposed to be. And it's the kind of a love feast that we have with each other and it's offered to all. And I, I 
really believe in the power of, of food to bring people together. Absolutely. Right. And I think that can be a way of um, food justice, food yeah. access and equitable food access. There's, it's not a crisis of not having food on the planet. No, it's not. waste. <laughs> you know, restaurants are throwing them out. And, and I think there's so much we can do. Um, and I think that's just the next first step to building relationships, getting back into that relationship, um, taking away that objectified knowledge, contextualing it, having the relationship. I think, yeah, food is just, I think it's the most universal way of communing. Big agree. Cool. Any final thoughts before we, we end this? Um, gosh, no. I mean, Madison, I would love to ask, you know, what, what have you been doing? to keep the summertime alive. What have I been doing to keep the summertime? Well, (laughs) uh, I eat a ton of Otter Pops. That's what I've been doing to keep the summertime alive. (laughs) Just so many Otter Pops, like... Because they're so small, too. Like, the ones that I've... They're only, like, one fluid ounce a packet. And so it's like, I can down five of those. In, They're so good. In like hey, 20 minutes. You don't have to, to just, you don't have to proof text me about Otter Pops. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. I love summer snacks. See, yeah. you should have an Otter Pop party. I should have an Otter Pop party. A Bristlecone Firesides Otter Pop party. Yeah, something. That sounds really exciting. <laughs>